Brian Levy's cookbook, Good and Sweet, opens with the bold declaration, I'll never give up dessert. The taste of vanilla ice cream is one of the things that, to me, makes life worth living. One of the pure joys. A perfect savory dish can feel like alchemy, humble ingredients combined and manipulated to produce gold. But a dessert done right is sparkling diamonds. Dessert, never a necessity, always a luxury, can be magic. And it's with that love of desserts, that eye for magic, that he tackles an entire, thoroughly tested cookbook of pastries that don't contain any added sugar. All the sugar comes from a combination of fruits in various forms. Fresh, juiced, dried, freeze-dried, and ingredients with natural sweetness, like almond milk, corn flour, chestnuts, and so on. Welcome back to Regenerative Baking. I'm your host, Dressler Parsons. I'm a pastry cook, and I'm also a pastry historian and an artist. I'm exploring what a self-sustaining bakery might look like, that is, one that only bakes what it grows. How would that actually work, and what would it mean for the crops, the menu, the scale of goods offered, the labor, the surrounding community? I'm talking to experts in any of these fields to help answer some of those questions. I found Good and Sweet when I was doing my initial research for the artist residency that this podcast grew out of, and it felt like an essential piece of the puzzle. If you only bake what you grow, how does sugar factor in? Cane sugar can't really grow outside of tropical environments, and even if it could, processing it is tricky and time-consuming. Sugar beets are another option for cooler climates, but turning them into granulated sugar is, again, time-consuming. What if you didn't need to grow cane or beet sugar, and all your sweetness came from other sources? And what if you adjusted your techniques and ratios so every dessert was still delicious, still had a beautiful texture, still made you believe in magic? In this episode, we talk about Brian's journey from food magazines to pastry kitchens to architecture and back again, the mango custard that started this whole fruit sweetened dessert journey, an abiding love of spreadsheets, recipe testing, vegan whipped cream, and so much more. So let's get into it with pastry cook and author Brian Levy. Well, it's so nice to meet you face-to-face. You too. (laughs) Do you want to start by just saying your name? Sure. It's Brian Levy. You open Good and Sweet with basically like a declaration of your love for dessert. I feel the same way about dessert, so I would love if you could expand on that a little bit. I was always always one of those people that um, like wasn't into the salty chips or anything. Um, I was... uh, dessert person I liked eating and I've never been like a like a sugary candy kind of person um I always liked the richer things like chocolate and caramel and I guess as I've gotten older I've I appreciate more salty snacks but um and have maybe less of a sweet tooth than I used to but I always want to try desserts at restaurants and I yeah often want dessert at home. Yeah. I mean, you know, I feel it's like uh like dessert occupies such a special space in our like society of having a little you know, like having a, a food that's like specifically designed to be celebratory and like be uh, you know, mark a special occasion. Yeah. I think I say in the introduction of the book that like dessert is 
always a luxury. It's never something that's necessary. So yeah, it always, whether it's something big or little or on a holiday or an, any day, it's it's always something kind of special and um, like luxurious. So your whole career path, you know, you were looking to work at a food magazine and then you wound up in fine dining restaurants doing pastry and then you became an architect. Yeah. Well, I didn't become an architect. I studied architecture and it wasn't for me, let's say. And um, I was doing after I went to grad school for architecture, I, I mean, I did some illustration and I using like architectural uh, design software and um, I did photo production work and um, eventually like nine years ago, I started experimenting with the kinds of desserts that ended up in the book that were sweetened with fruit and other naturally sweet ingredients. Um, That's what kind of brought me back into food as a career, I guess. Yeah, the the architecture thing was more the off-roading. Gotcha. I mean, it makes, like, there's a lot about pastry that is very architectural. Yeah, I had had pastries in my, um, photos of pastries in my uh, portfolio when I was applying to architecture school. So there was that. It all works together. Um, I have a bunch of very nerdy questions for you okay. if you're... Yeah. Okay. So the first one is, what was the process like of kind of honing in on your stable of replacement sweeteners? Because you have a variety of flowers, you have um, fruit that you kind of return to. Where did you start? And then how did you go about adding things to the roster? Okay. Well, where I started was with mango, like fresh fruit, um, right? because eating a sweet mango was what kind of gave me the idea for it. I mean, it was so sweet. I thought I must be able to make a dessert with this without having to add extra sugar. Um, so I started with a custard um, based on like a regular creme brulee kind of recipe, Min- minus the brulee part. Um which I guess is a, just a vanilla custard. Um, <laughs> but I made it with fresh mango, um, cooked it down. Long story short, it worked. And I thought I should try more. Obviously, everything wasn't going to, everything that I wanted to try wasn't going to be mango flavored. So I had to try other fresh fruits. And it became clear pretty quickly that like, Water is the thing you first need to eliminate to make fruit useful for most baking applications, which even when I used the fresh mango, I that first time I cooked it down a lot with the cream and milk to cook off like a good part of the water that those ingredients contained um, so that the sweetness would be um, concentrated enough for it to taste like a dessert. When you add cane sugar to something, you're adding sweetness in its most concentrated, purified form, like making something sour with citric acid instead of a squeeze of lemon juice, or making something salty with salt instead of anchovies or olives or capers. 
Making something sweet without refined sugar means you're working with a more complicated palette of flavors and textures and sweetness that's often more diluted, so it needs to be as concentrated as possible to get that same pure sugar effect. Because, yes, the mango on its own is sweet enough, but then once you add a bunch of, when you dilute it with other ingredients that aren't that sweet, it's obviously going to take away from the sweetness, so you have to get that back by eliminating water. Um, so I went to dried fruits, um, freeze-dried fruits. I knew about chestnut flour, which I, I loved the flavor of since my Babo restaurant days. Um, that's a very Italian ingredient, and we used it a lot at Babo. Um, Babo is a Michelin-starred Italian staple of Greenwich Village with a complicated legacy because it was co-owned by Mario Batali. When it first opened in 1998, Ruth Reichel wrote a glowing New York Times review describing Babo as a breath of fresh air, risk-taking, and courageous. By 2017, Pete Wells called it still one of New York's essential restaurants, but the rest of his review was tepid, dancing around the feeling that the food was not as show-stopping or peerless as it once was. By the end of that year, Eater broke the story detailing Batali's decades-long history of sexual misconduct, and by 2019, he was fully divested from Babo and the rest of his culinary empire. That said, when Brian worked there, he was mentored by the celebrated pastry chef Gina De Palma, who passed away in 2015. She won the James Beard Award for Best Pastry Chef in 2009 and wrote a cookbook called Dolce Italiano, Desserts from the Babo Kitchen, with dozens of recipes, including sesame and white corn biscotti, chocolate and tangerine semifreddo, and her iconic chestnut cake. Melissa Clark sings that cake's praises and shares the recipe in a 1999 New York Times article linked in the show notes. And chestnuts are, I don't know, surprisingly sweet on their own. So when they're uh, dried and ground to a powder, they're fairly sweet. I wanted from the start to not just come up with a one-to-one, like all-purpose replacement for cane sugar or other sweeteners. I have, I had plenty of experience using maple syrup and agave and all that. And that wasn't what I didn't really consider that much of a challenge because it, those are like almost pure sugars and it's not that it's not that hard to bake with them really. Um, so the challenge for me was to use things that were not um, pure or near pure sugars. So kind of my eventually somewhere down the line, my cutoff for sugar content percentage was that which dates have, which is around 67%. Mm. And the rest is the rest is like mostly fiber um, and other nutrients. How does that get measured? Do you bricks it? Oh, no, I never did that. The bricksing or the measuring of the sugar myself. I just... Um, spent a lot of time looking at, uh, I think it's on the USDA site. They have like basically almost every ingredient you could ever imagine has been tested and the like detailed nutritional value is up there. So you can see how much like ash it has in it and fiber and carbohydrates total and sugars and etc. I went to this website, linked in the show notes, of course, 
and looked up apricots because it was the first thing that popped into my head. It spit out a very, very long list of nutrients per 100 grams of apricots, including 86.4 grams of water, 1.4 grams of protein, and 9.24 grams of sugar, which it then further broke down into sucrose, glucose, fructose, lactose, maltose, and galactose. This is a great place to either do specific research for food experiments or get forever lost in an endless void of numbers. So that was a useful tool for also just kind of researching what flowers and grains and uh, nuts um, naturally have a good amount of sugar in them. That's amazing. Yeah. (laughs) Were there any that you were like surprised by? Or did it all feel pretty intuitive? When it came to nuts, of course, chestnuts are the sweetest. and But of the, like, crunchy nuts, um, pecans read as, or or eat, as they would say on Top Chef. <laughs> they, they eat sweeter than, than um, most other nuts. Um, coconut, I was surprised how how much I ended up using that because it really is um, fairly sweet. It's sweeter than like coconut milk is sweeter than dairy milk. Coconut dried coconut flakes are pretty sweet on their own. I don't know that I was surprised by this, but I think other people might be surprised by this. Um, Miso paste. It's, it has a good amount of, it's like salty and has that umami that everyone knows it for, but it's also fairly sweet. Uh, the white miso paste and otherwise known as sweet miso paste. Um, and that when you're not, when you're not using um, cane sugar that caramelizes and you want to kind of mimic the f- complex flavors of caramel, um, the miso paste comes in really handy. So yeah, cause you use it in the, in your caramel recipe. Yeah. Like the apple caramel. Yeah. This cane sugar-free caramel recipe is made by boiling apple juice, butter, salt, and baking soda for about 15 minutes until it reaches 240 degrees Fahrenheit and is reduced to about one quarter of its original volume. Then you whisk in cornstarch, let it simmer another minute, remove it from the heat, and add dates that have been pitted and chopped. Then put everything in a food processor and blend it till it looks like smooth, creamy caramel. The very last step is mixing milk powder, miso, and vanilla together, then adding it to the food processor and blending it in. Obviously, this is way more labor-intensive than caramelizing cane sugar, but perhaps growing apples and dates is less labor-intensive than growing and processing sugar cane or sugar beets. And besides, it's exciting to have options to figure out a way to make something without using the usual ingredients. In... That recipe, you have baking soda. What uh, what purpose does the baking soda serve? So that's kind of just to neutralize the um, apple juice's acidity. Ah. There's a lot of not 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 as much for um, like chemical reasons as for uh, taste. Like I don't want the there's a lot of apple juice in it and. I didn't want the caramel to be quite as um, tart as it would be without the little bit of baking soda that goes in it. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Are there other, like, 
is baking soda the main acidity neutralizing ingredient that people use or are there other like yeah the, i mean it's pretty much just that and um like in german baking they use lot lye for certain things but yeah baking soda is the basic as in base versus acid um ingredient that's most accessible and yeah yeah that makes sense when you were recipe testing well actually first so you uh you mentioned that you have a sugar calculator that you made oh uh, it's not just sugar it's a i don't really know how to describe it um it's a spreadsheet basically that has a database of like all the ingredients i use and uh, like hundreds of ingredients um that I added to all along as I tested and without giving the whole thing away I can input recipes that I want to adapt to my good and sweet way and it helps get me started with a recipe to go off of and probably saves me several steps of testing that's awesome I mean I am I'm personally dying to see this spreadsheet but I understand if it's if it's a secret spreadsheet I'll show you that would be amazing um but no pressure i just i am a big spreadsheet fan oh, I, and i am too I, I love spreadsheet i have one two i have four tabs of spreadsheets open right now <laughs> that's amazing yeah like i mean when i was in pastry school like just for fun like on my own time uh when we learned about baker's percentages i like took every single recipe in the book and put it in a spreadsheet and like calculated the baker's percentages of every ingredient and then like color coded it so that I could um, basically like sort through it and see visually what the ratios of like liquid to eggs like were for these different categories of baked good. I mean, it's so wild to then like break it down that way. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's, Spreadsheets are fun. And that's uh, the the setup of the, it's it's since been archived, so it's a, a different format. But that USDA thing I was talking about, you used to be able to like search it and have it give you results in like a very spreadsheet format. So you could like mm-hmm. arrange things from l- like largest sugar content to smallest. And yeah, that was that was very helpful. And I'm glad it existed when I was doing my research yeah it's unfortunate that it's not there anymore but i know alas <laughs> what was your recipe testing process like so would you like was it very methodical where you'd kind of formulate an idea beforehand or would you just kind of go for it with the first try and then like make notes and reel it back in at, at the beginning i was going for it um like i obviously had to do some math to uh, like calculate like how much water am I going to cook off? And um, eventually I did, uh, I ended up doing less of that. Like the book isn't full of recipes where you have to cook off a bunch of water because I I knew that wasn't really fun. Um. <laughs> if you've ever boiled something down to reduce it, you know it can be a low flame, let it go for hours kind of situation. Not ideal when you're in the mood to bake something. And um, there are ways to get around that. So the testing process usually started, like once I like got into a groove, 
uh, it started with me going to that spreadsheet calculator of mine. I'd have research on recipes uh, from people I trusted or recipes that I already knew, but that were conventional and used cane sugar or honey or some other uh, traditional sugar. Okay, so I would go to the spreadsheet and come up with a starting recipe. And like I said, that probably saved me several steps of testing. Um, So I could usually go into it, well, I was going to say I could go into it somewhat confident, but that's not true because it was usually kind of a crapshoot at the the first test. Um, Sometimes even when I thought something was going to be really easy, it just wasn't. And then sometimes when I wasn't so sure, I'd do one test and it would be done. Um, But that letter wasn't the most common case. Um, usually it took a few a few tests. I'd go off of my spreadsheet recipe and tweak things according to whatever came out of the oven. What were the most common like structural issues that you would run into, you know, with like custards not setting or something? Like what was the the usual culprit? Well, things like custards and uh panna cottas are were the easiest to get right because of really well because the liquid isn't such a an issue it's the things like that are supposed to be fluffy and um like cakes my first cake tests were horrible i thought that i once i started thinking about freeze-dried fruit i thought oh i can i'll just be able to grind this to a powder and it'll act just like sugar and and I'll have blueberry cake from freeze-dried blueberries and apple cake from freeze-dried apples. And um, it didn't work. That all turned out to be the, these first Genoise cakes that I tried. Um, by the way, do you, do you watch um, Great Bridges Bake Off? I used to watch it all the time. And then when I started working in pastry full-time, it was like I couldn't watch it anymore just because it was too much pastry all the time and I needed a break. Um, But I do, I love it. I'm just curious because I said Genoise and it reminded me that they always say, they say Genoese on. Oh, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. um, So I started, I tested a bunch of Genoise with different freeze dried fruits and, and other dried fruits, I think. And they just were gummy messes. Um, A cake, fix that came much further down the line was when I uh, thought about reverse creaming, which is Rose Levy Berenbaum's method of inhibiting gluten formation by coating flour in butter or oil, whatever, fat before um, mixing it with the liquid ingredients in the recipe. Rose Levy Berenbaum is an award-winning and celebrated cookbook author best known for her various Bibles, the Cake Bible, the Pie and Pastry Bible, the Bread Bible, the Baking Bible, and most recently, the Cookie Bible. She's typically credited with popularizing the reverse creaming method in cake mixing. And I thought, after many experiments where um, the freeze-dried fruit was absorbing all of the moisture from a recipe, I thought, 
if I coat those ingredients with fat, maybe that'll similarly keep them from absor- absorbing all the liquid in the recipe and becoming like a mass of kind of gummy goo. And that did work. So that became my, um, when I was using freeze-dried fruit or like a um, crunchy dried fruit, like the, I use those apple chips a lot, mm-hmm. um, which I would never, I want them to become popular as a baking ingredient because I would never snack on those personally, but they're really good as an ingredient if you grind them to a powder and use them in cakes and cookies and things. So I don't know. That's my latest mission is to get people to use those. It's a good mission. <laughs> Someone's got to take up the mantle. People have more, more important missions, but that's, that's mine. All right. You heard it here first. In for 2024, powdered apple chips as a baking ingredient. There, there was a thing I learned early on that, um, meringue was not going to work without using um, cane or similar sugar. I mean, I actually did get a meringue to work using freeze-dried fruit, or I don't remember if it was with juices or freeze-dried fruits, but um, it kind of lived for an hour or so out of the oven Uh. as a rigid meringue, and then it like started to melt. Uh. I don't know if it was like, it like again, absorbed all the moisture from the air or something. And just, anyway, so I, that early on, I had to come to the conclusion that like, there are certain things that this method of cooking or baking is going to work with. And there are certain things that it's not going to work with like meringue. So in that way, it kind of highlighted to me where sugar is important, mm. like where using sugar would be important and it's worth relying on it so like yeah if you want if you want to make meringue use sugar do you know can you make meringue with like uh because you said other like near sugar alternatives so like could you do a meringue with honey or with maple syrup or like i haven't coconut sugar or that kind of thing coconut sugar for sure because that's a very like you know crystalline structure um i haven't done it with honey or maple syrup that I can remember, but I would think yes, unless the glucose keeps it from like getting firm. Mm. But I would think, I would think it is possible. Yeah. I want to know if you could do it with like, like Italian meringue style where you heat it up to like softball stage and then stream it in if it would work the same. Yeah. I, I don't see why it wouldn't (laughs) give it a try. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, give it a try. (laughs) If you Google honey meringues or maple syrup meringues or agave syrup meringues, recipes definitely exist. And so does a Food 52 recipe for brown butter waffle cake with sorghum meringue buttercream linked in the show notes. Did you find that there was like a big difference between freeze dried fruit and regular dried fruit? Well, there's a difference in color in water content um and in flavor i find that or i think it's just a an objective fact is that um traditionally dried fruit like whether it's sun-dried or 
however they dry it when they're not sun drying it, um, in a dehydrator, it alters the color and the flavor of the fruit. So like a dried apricot tastes very different from a fresh apricot. Mm-hmm. And of course, unless it has additives in it, keep it, making it stay that apricot color, it turns brown. Freeze-dried fruits, on the other hand, the the freeze-drying process happens so fast that the fruits retain their shape minus the water and retain their color and a lot of the same flavor that's there in the fresh fruit. Uh, So freeze-dried fruit is closer to fresh fruit, I would say. And when you're trying to avoid making everything brown, their (laughs) freeze-dried fruits are very useful. Yeah, I have a tart crust that I use freeze-dried blueberries for, and it's just this beautiful brilliant purple. Brian's blueberry tart crust is made with all-purpose flour, corn flour, salt, baking powder, lemon zest, unsalted butter, one egg, vanilla extract, a dash of heavy cream, and is sweetened with freeze-dried blueberries, which also give the dough a vibrant purple hue. The disadvantage to freeze-dried fruit is that it's way more expensive. When you think about how much fruit the, the bag that feels the weight of paper you're buying, um, how much fruit that bag represents, because so much of fresh fruit is water. So when you take the water out, you're not left with too much weight. So it feels like you're paying a lot for a little, but it kind of goes a long way and it pack it has tons of flavor in it. Um, it's better for you than cane sugar. <laughs> yeah. Do you know if it's theoretically possible to like freeze dry fruit? Uh, I mean, you would probably need a machine for it, but like to freeze dry fruit at home or. You can get a, if, to buy a freeze dry dryer, it's very expensive. So yeah, when I was spending a lot on dried and freeze dried fruit, I looked into that and you know, it's not, it's not really feasible. Yeah. Freeze-drying machines, by the way, are somewhere between two and $4,000, which, if you're buying one for home use, is pretty unreasonable. But if you're running a bakery, an industrial-sized mixer, or a brand-new convection oven costs about the same. But there are, there are sources, like Trader Joe's has um, probably the most affordable selection. They don't have, like, you know, every freeze-dried fruit that I use, but when they... When they do have them they're probably the best deal i'm also thinking about this like you know imaginary sustainable bakery that you know if if this bakery were like only baking with fruit like could it have a freeze drying machine maybe i don't know yeah i don't know what that world would be like i think i think it would (laughs) (laughs) i think it would and all right <laughs> and, it would, and it would come in very handy um and i don't know uh, of course i'm not like a sustainability expert so i don't know if like the energy that it uses like would cancel out the good you're doing by using local fruit or whatever but well maybe it could be solar powered we can dream big yeah <laughs> you mentioned somewhere in good and sweet that uh you think a lot about like kitchen designs and that kind of thing. Do you have an ideal kitchen design kind of tucked away somewhere? Hmm. No. I <laughs> No. 
I did redo my kitchen, um, which is a small kitchen that was not, we had a flood a few years ago. And so I was like excited for the chance to have to, to, to have to redo the kitchen um, and actually design it in a way that made sense because things just weren't arranged in a, just as long as things are arranged in a, where they sequentially make sense in the process of cooking, I'm happy. And as long as things aren't too far from each other and the refrigerator opens on the correct side and stuff like that. (laughs) Yeah. No, I feel that it does make a huge difference when a space like makes sense for the task that you're supposed to be doing there. And you don't have to constantly be working like against the design of the space. Yeah. I used to cook for a family that had um, wood countertops and I loved that. So that was always in the back of my head. So when we redid the kitchen, we got wood countertops. And oh, that's so nice. <laughs> more light. We could use more light in the kitchen. Um, it's one sufficient and nicely colored light is important (laughs) i mean more light is always always good yeah you know i recently uh i started a new job and so and it's like a bakery that the whole front half is windows Mm -hmm. versus i used to be working in like a basement prep kitchen and i will tell you having windows huge difference (laughs) i know i never big difference i never worked in one of those kitchens in a basement in New York, fortunately, I can't like I've I've worked in them for like you know a couple of days at a time or something like doing stages or whatever prepping stuff for events, but I can't I I it always I don't I don't like being in a basement kitchen. Yeah, <laughs> a windowless basement I, kitchen. If people don't know what we're talking hard. about there. It's just bad for the soul. <laughs> yeah. Windows are, I need windows. <laughs> yeah. Are you, is there anything you're working on right now that you're excited about? So I'm working on some things for Serious Eats. And then I have the uh, Kitchen Projects newsletter, which Nicola Lamb's Kitchen Projects. Do you know Do you know it? Yeah, I do. I actually, uh, I subscribe to the newsletter and okay. yeah. it's very cool. It's, uh, it was recently recommended by the guardian it's a really good and popular baking newsletter um and i'm doing a uh alternative baking column for it so actually this weekend um well it won't be this weekend when this once people are listening to this but i've done a vegan uh whipped cream recipe that i am really happy with uh is getting published this sunday that's exciting yeah what excites you about it? Well, it's just tastes really good and looks really good, like whipped cream. Um, and it's not canned coconut cream, well, <laughs> which is the like go-to uh, solution for vegan whipped cream and isn't really that reliable and tastes like coconut, of course. Yeah. The one that I developed does not taste like coconut. So it's more uh, versatile and it really looks like whipped cream and has the same mouthfeel 
this vegan whipped cream recipe has since come out, and I thought it was super interesting, and the article itself is really well written. It was clearly thoroughly tested, and all of the choices are really well explained. The Kitchen Projects newsletter is linked in the show notes, so you can check it out. Breakthroughs like that are really exciting when you're like, oh my god, like I made this thing with a different with different yeah. things. That's huge. <laughs> and well, so for a while now I've been um selling my granola and shortbread, which are recipes from the book, um, at either pop-up bakeries that I did or um farmers market, which I just had my final week of the farmers market last week for the season um and so my next big project is to attempt to uh get these products on actual store shelves oh wow yeah that's a huge project yeah so that's exciting because challenge so far has just been finding a commercial kitchen for production uh which i've started to have some luck finally with but hopefully that'll happen sometime in the near future yeah i hope (laughs) i hope i don't make a liar out of myself no i mean i'm sure you know i'm sure it's gonna happen (laughs) (laughs) thank you is your dream like local store shelves or like you know like could i theoretically buy some someday in brooklyn as well theoretically i would like you to be able to buy them in brooklyn and (laughs) brooklyn and berkeley wherever nice (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, you know, this has been such a a lovely chat. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thanks for talking to me. (laughs) I love your book. It's, It's great. Thanks. So in thinking about an imaginary sustainable bakery, this locks in pretty neatly. It's easy to imagine an orchard right outside the bakery windows, a forest of fruit and nut trees, bushes of berries, and maybe even a freeze drying machine to take full advantage of the harvest. This book in particular does lean semi-heavily on dates, and date palms generally do best in warm climates, so I'd love to find out what regional substitutes would look like. Thank you so much for listening, and if you like what you heard and you want to support me and support this project, I would love for you to go rate this show and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Those reviews make a big deal in shows finding new listeners. Also, if you have someone in your life you think would be interested in a podcast about building a sustainable bakery as the climate changes, please share this with them. You can follow me on Instagram at Regenerative Baking or Dressler Parsons, and show notes are up at dresslerparsons.com slash regenerativebaking. Also, the intro and outro music were made by me. Have a lovely two weeks, happy 2024, and until next time, the future could be sweet. <laughs>